Right. Would you take the Word of God with me and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 22. Exodus and uh, chapter 22. I want to give a brief testimony about this week with uh, Summer Bible School. We, um, I think a total throughout the week we had 15 um, first-time uh, visitors, um, young people, or some of the parents that came uh, for the first time. And I was uh, making some remarks I think it was on the third night about um, uh, sin, and we were talking about um, sin and transgression and iniquity. And one of the young boys, nine years old, exclaimed, Wow, I've never heard those things before. And that was a thrill to my heart, but at the same time, it broke my heart because it's wonderful that he hears it, but it's sad that so many children know nothing about the Word of God and about what the Word of God teaches. And it was a wonderful opportunity uh, to be able to have an impact. And even uh, some of the young people did not uh, trust Christ as their Savior. At least there's a seed that's been planted. And we trust that uh, it will be doing a work in their lives through the years. And, and so that was uh, just a thrill to be, able to, to be able to participate in that. So... Exodus chapter 22, we're going to begin reading in verse 16, and uh, thus far as we've looked at those judgments, we've been able to group a number of verses together with a certain theme uh, for a, a certain section, but as we come here to this next section, beginning here in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 16, if you have maybe a paragraph divisions in your Bible, you'll realize that there is a bunch of different paragraphs, so those are not included together. They're individual judgments. Um, we might call them um, social justice, the right type of social justice that was going on at that time, uh, and laying out some judgments to guide the judges. Again, Israel operating under a theocracy. Uh, there was no king at that time. Uh, Moses was God's spokesman, but they operated purely as a theocracy. And uh, we're going to find uh, that he gives these judgments, and as we've seen in the last few studies, to guide those who would judge the children of Israel uh, for specifically the nation of Israel. This is not, as we see here, these are not the rules that are to govern all countries and all societies. These are the rules that are to govern God's people. Now, I say that because uh, sometimes when we study the Bible and you study church history, uh, those who are part of the quote-unquote church history, and that's Christendom, which is pretty broad within that. We could say those who do not preach the gospel but may believe in Jesus Christ as a, the virgin-born Son of God. But throughout the century, people have used the Old Testament as a mandate to say, okay, well, here is what they did in the Old Testament, and so we're going to do the exact same thing. And uh, within Christendom, churches we think about uh, during the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church, used much of what was found in the Old Testament to justify the killing, for example, of heretics. Uh, the killing of what they would refer to as witches and, and so on. Uh, that is not the mandate of the church. 
However, we do have to achieve a balance between the two because we can say that this is not the mandate of the church. We're not here to advocate for the same consequences that those who broke the laws and the judgments of the nation of Israel were subject to. But it doesn't mean that those things are not wrong. <laughs> and we have to have a balanced view of those things. Those are still wrong, and we can still be as categorically opposed to it as God was here in Exodus chapter 22 in the 21st century without advocating to say, well, the consequences ought to be the same today. We come to the book of 1 Corinthians and he's writing to a group of people who were in a pagan society and who were saved out of wickedness. And the truth is we are all saved out of wickedness. All of us are. Uh, if we're not careful, though, we uh, tend to forget what we have been saved from. And it's very important for us to rejoice in our salvation uh, and to have a balance where we can rejoice that God has saved us from our wickedness without glorifying our wickedness before we were saved or without condoning that wickedness before we were saved. We're going to look here at a number of judgments that are given here and uh, let me give you the title which will give you maybe a direction of where we're going i'm going to try to deal with those as they come here uh, in chapter 22 beginning in verse 16 but we're going to preach tonight on virgins which is bestiality and idolatry all of those subjects because that's the order we're going to find them in in the scriptures and so uh, let's uh, read together Exodus chapter 22 verse 16 and the Bible says and if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her he shall surely endow her to be his wife if her father utterly refuse to give her unto him he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins thou shall not suffer a witch to live Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. So there we have it. All of those different subjects are not related except for this one thing. They are all wickedness in the sight of God. All of them are. And so I want to preach this evening on virgins, which is bestiality and idolatry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we look at those judgments that you've laid out for the children of Israel, but also for us to learn, we are not to learn just how the nation of Israel were to function under a theocracy, but we are also to learn the things that you have declared to be immoral, ungodly, and wickedness. And I pray the Lord that in the 21st century as a church that we would hold to the same standard, to the same morality, to the same righteousness as your people that you've always held to. And so give us understanding and wisdom by your Spirit to discern what you're teaching here and to not just capture the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law that you're communicating through those judgments. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
as we've looked at uh, the law of God, or we look at the law of God, or when we think about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they're referred to as the books of the law. Uh, they're referred to also as the Pentateuch. That's another name that they're referred to. But within the books of the law are three categories, and I've al always mentioned this because we need to make a distinction between all of them. Uh, we talked about in Exodus chapter 20 how we have laid before us God's moral law. Uh, that's found in the Ten Commandments. And when we say the moral law, we believe that this moral law is what Romans chapter 2 refers to as the law of God that is written in the heart of every man. It matters not whether he is a Jew or a Gentile, whether he has grown up uh, learning from the Scriptures or the Scriptures are completely foreign to him. The moral law of God is written in the heart of man. Uh, that's what Romans 2 tells us. And so I believe that that law, the Ten Commandments, God's law, is written in the heart of every man. That's why you can go to any society around the world, to the remotest jungle in the Amazon or in Papua New Guinea, where the artisans are serving, and you will find that the people there who do not have a Bible in their own language will condemn the same things that the Bible condemns. How can that be if they've never read or heard the Word of God? It's because there is a moral law that's written to the heart of man that uh, the, uh, all societies have based a standard of morality on those first ten commandments. And so that's the moral law of God. But then we also have the judicial or the civil law which are referred to as the judgments of God. They are governing the social conduct of the children of Israel. Uh, these are first found here in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21, chapter 22, and 23. And I, as I repeat here, the judgments of God are given uh, not as laws. When we think about thou shalt have no other gods before me, but they're rather given as judgments uh, which means that they are to be a reference point to those who would serve in Israel as judges among the children of Israel. It is not possible, and I hope we understand that today, to list every single different scenario that you could think of and to list every single scenario to give as a judge so that when that scenario comes up, uh, then you judge according to that. It's not possible to do that. But the judgments are there to be given as a reference point. Here are the principles that you ought to consider when you are judging to assure that you are judging righteous judgment. We may think of our own country today. For example, a judge is to judge according to the Constitution of the United States of America. And they are to operate within those boundaries the Constitution does not list every single scenario, but what it does give is a framework by which the judges are to operate and to pronounce judgment, whether somebody is guilty or innocent based on the Constitution. And so in the same way, those judgments are acting to the children of Israel as a constitution or a guide by those principles that are to govern the people in Israel. And so this is for the civil law of the children of Israel. How are the people to interact with their fellow man? 
And then there's a third category, which we'll look at in Exodus chapter 25, and that is the ceremonial law. That's a different aspect of the law. The ceremonial law pertains to the religious life of the nation of Israel that surrounds specifically the tabernacle, which will be instituted here in, ex- in the book of Exodus. And uh, it's going to be first instituted in Exodus 25, and it's going to be further explained all throughout the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the book about the ceremonial law. Although there are mentions about the judgments and the moral law of God, it mainly pertains to the, to the ceremonial law. We today do not operate under the ceremonial law. We do not operate under the judicial law. And we do not operate in the sense of under the moral law in the sense that if we violate any of those, then we are put to death. Right? We are not, as a church, we're not a country, a nation, a theocracy. We do not have a physical tabernacle that was instituted there. And we, uh, and so therefore, uh, that, however, does not mean that we look at all of those things and we just throw them away. Uh, we look at those things and what we learn is not just about the consequences that were to be carried out in the nation, but we learn about God's standard. And I... I hope that's what we're getting out of this, that uh, what is God's standard? How are we to understand that God is holy? You see, we we may talk today about, well, God is a holy God, but the truth is, what does that mean practically in our lives, that God is holy? And so what we learn really with those judgments is about the holiness of God. As we look at our text here, and we're going to begin in verse 16, and I'd like to take here each part and uh, we'll go with as much time as we have because there are different subjects but I'd like to try to dive into those a little deeper than just the surface I think we read them and we all can have an understanding and a comprehension of what he is trying to say but let's begin with the first one as he deals here with virgins in the nation of Israel in verse 16 he says this and if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her He shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuse to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. Now, I'd like to, first of all, highlight some important words because we read this and we might uh, be bothered, but I, I, I do want to look at some important words. And then we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 22, which we find some different cases or different scenarios that are laid before us in relation to this specific judgment. But I want you to notice, first of all, the word entice. Uh, Meaning, the word entice means to deceive or to flatter or to persuade. And so, here is a man who is uh, using his charm to attempt to deceive a maid into committing an immoral act. That's what he is talking about. Uh, We also have the word uh, a maid. Notice, if he entice a maid that is not betrothed. Uh, Now, what does that mean? Uh, A maid that is not betrothed means a woman who has not been committed to a man for marriage. Uh, Now, in the Jewish tradition, and uh, I said the Jewish tradition, but it's in the Bible that the way that uh, the marriage union works is a little different than the way we work it today. For example, we uh, uh, may 
have somebody that we're interested in and uh, you uh, date that person and then you propose to that person and so then there's an engagement period and then you get to the marriage altar and when you get to the marriage altar the uh, pastor prepares right he signs and he uh, says that you are now legally married and he puts his signature and so from that moment on according to the law that then you're married and uh, that's the process that most people go through in the Jewish tradition when uh, a man was interested in a young woman he would go first to uh, the family and he would manifest an interest for uh, their daughter and and then he would uh, if he had the blessing of the father uh, of the of the father he would proceed then to they would have a ceremony where they would be betrothed that's not a wedding ceremony it's a betrothal ceremony where they would come together and they would come under what we might refer to as a contractual agreement and what would happen after that ceremony they would not come together in intimacy but they would make an agreement and then the young man would leave uh, his betrothed wife she is properly called his wife but he would leave his betrothed wife for a period of six to nine months he would prepare a home and after that time of being away he would come back for her and then they would be married officially married and then the marriage would be consummated so the betrothal period understand what that meant it meant that you were already married you already were in an agreement uh, as in a husband and wife relationship we come to the new testament you remember joseph and mary before they came together they are referred to as husband and wife because they were betrothed but the marriage was not consummated you remember Mary did not know a man. She did not know Joseph, nor any man, yet she was betrothed. She was already married to Joseph legally. And you remember, Joseph had the option, he was thinking about putting her away. What does that mean? Giving her a bill of divorce. Because that was during the betrothal period. If she had bound, found uh, to be unfaithful, then he could put her away by giving her a bill of divorce. And so here, when we see that this is a maid uh, that is not betrothed she has not been committed to another man now the reason why i say that that is important is because of what happens after this he says if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her he shall surely endow her to be his wife if her father utterly refused to give her unto him he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins and so here's what would happen if a man by deception, by the charm, enticed a woman to be intimate with him, uh, and she was not betrothed, not committed to another man. If he did that, then he would have the option, by doing that, he would be held accountable in the sense that you can't just do that and be loose about the matter of morality and intimacy that he was to give her a dowry we see and, and that would mean that as a young man when he was committing um, himself to marry a young woman he would come to the father and they would bring a dowry which was a gift a gift money camels whatever the the gift was whatever the price was and it could be different according to a person's uh, wealth and what they had and so here he says look he's not going to get out of this what, what God is trying to limit among the children of Israel is not to go into 
a, an act of immorality so quickly, so thoughtlessly, thinking that it doesn't matter and it's irrelevant. He, he said, basically saying there, there is a price to pay for that. But notice he says, but uh, in verse 17, if her father utterly refused to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. And so what he is saying here is that the father has the option of refusing. In other words, after he's been immoral and he's charmed her and he's enticed her and deceived her, uh, they commit the act of immorality. God says, you're not going to go off so easy. You're going to give the gift of dowry because you need to commit yourself. You not just need to be loose about yourself, but commit yourself. And you go to her father, give her the gift, but if he refuses, you're still going to give the gift. In other words, there's a price to pay. You're not going to get off so easily. There is a price to pay for immorality. Now in this case, it is intimacy outside of marriage to two individuals who are not married. Uh, the New Testament calls it, the Old Testament calls it fornication. Now I want you to hold your place here and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 22. Now in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 22, we have... Um, some more scenarios, if you would, with different applications as to the different situations. And let me lay them out for you. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, he first of all addresses what I will, re what I will refer to as consensual adultery. Consensual adultery. Notice verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband notice not betrothed married to an husband then they shall both of them die both the man that lay with the woman and the woman so shall thou put away evil from Israel notice what he's not mentioned it's not a man enticing a woman here it's a woman it's a man with a woman who is married who are uh, um, uh, who come together in intimacy and here this is the act of consensual adultery and notice what the end of verse 22 says so shall thou put away evil from Israel I'm just going to say it here as plainly as I can adultery is an evil I was hoping there would be more amens out in the congregation tonight Adultery is an evil. It is not okay for us, even though we operate in the 21st century and we're not under a theocracy, but we're in the church of Jesus Christ. Adultery is still to be categorically condemned. It is an evil that God told His people to put away from Israel. So that's consensual adultery. But then he moves on to what I will refer to as consensual fornication. Notice verse 23 and 24. If a damsel that is a virgin, so see, this is not a man who is, uh, who is married, but notice she is betrothed unto an husband. So she's betrothed in that she has a contractual agreement, but the marriage has not been consummated. She has never come in intimacy with her husband. Okay? And so he says, if a damsel, which is a virgin, be betrothed unto an husband. So notice, right, because we think today she's a virgin but has a husband. How can that be? Because she's betrothed. That, that's why. So she's still a virgin. And a man find her in the city and lie with her. 
Then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die, the damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, uh, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. So here, this is consensual fornication in this sense. The Bible mentions nothing about the man enticing the woman. That's what he had mentioned in Exodus chapter 22. He didn't entice her here. Uh, they committed fornication. She was already committed, betrothed to a man, and yet she, and notice what he says, she was in the city, and here what, what's, what went wrong is she didn't cry. In other words, it shows us here that it was consensual. It was not forced. It was, if it was forced, she would have cried out, and in the city they would have heard. And so this is consensual fornication. Now notice again, the consequence is that both of them shall be stoned with stones that they die. So adultery, consensual, consensual adultery meant stoning at that time. Put out the evil from the nation of Israel. Consensual fornication was punishable by death. Put this evil out from among you. But then he goes forth with more scenarios. Verse 25. I will refer to this as non-consensual fornication with someone who is betrothed. Notice verse 25. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, notice they didn't prepare, this was not premeditated, but he find a damsel in the field, and the man force her. Ah, see, that's a difference from the other cases. And lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. Well, yes, obviously, the woman is not responsible. Notice she's in the field, she's not in the city. If she was in the city, she could cry out for help, but she's not, she's in the field. Nobody's going to hear her. The man is, in that case, is to be put to death. The damsel is not to be touched. But unto the damsel, verse 26, thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so is this matter. Okay? So that's pretty plain. Verse 27. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. Okay? So that will be non-consensual fornication in betrothal. But there's then a third, uh, a fourth category, and that is verse 28 through 29. Non-consensual consensual fornication without betrothal. So betrothal, remember, is she's already committed to a man, but the marriage has not, not been consummated because she's still a virgin. But this next scenario is she is not betrothed to any man. She is a virgin, but not betrothed. Verse 28. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he hath humbled her. He may not put her away all of his days. So here what he says is, now by the way, the disclaimer in Exodus chapter 22 is the father can step in and say, absolutely not. You give me the prize, but you don't get my daughter. Now, the challenge would be, it would be difficult for, for that daughter to find any man after that, because it was priceless for a man to find a woman who had been a virgin. And so, there's a two-sided here. He's saying that he still has to pay the price, and the man has to make a commitment. He cannot 
uh, be loose and be immoral without consequence. And he ought to be committed to this woman that he is at intimacy with for the rest of his life without being allowed to put her away. Now the disclaimer in Exodus 22 is if the father steps in and says no, then he still pays the price to the father, but most likely the daughter will never marry. That was the society then. So what do we learn from this? If we go back to Exodus chapter 22, God placed great importance on moral purity. Uh, we, We might refer to this as sexual purity. According to the judgments of the Lord, there was always, notice, always a price to pay for corrupting God's moral standard. There was always a price to pay for corrupting God's moral standard. And so as we look at those different scenarios, those different judgments, he says you're not going to treat your body, the body of your neighbor's wife, or his betrothed wife, or the body of a woman, uh, loosely and insignificantly. And uh, uh, it is a shame today that, by the way, I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about within the church. Within the church. And the reason why I say that, I'm not saying this church, but I'm saying churches in general, and I'll say it, Baptist churches, where people commit all of those immoralities and go without consequence. Uh, And what I mean by without consequence is they think it's okay to behave in such a way. You have young men living with young women before they're married. Having intimacy before their marriage. That is an evil. You have those who are involved even in church. And I'm ashamed to say pastors are involved in committing adultery. Often it is found when they're counseling someone. And so all those immorality has to uh, be dealt with very seriously and we have to be very careful uh, and to say, well, I would never do anything like that. Take heed lest ye fall. Uh, None of us should think of ourselves as incapable of committing immoral, immoral acts. None of us should see ourselves that way. Some years ago, I was speaking to a a man who was engaged with a woman, and he says, "Well, we're 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 going to be pure. We're going to be pure. We're going to wait till marriage." By the way, that's the way to do it. And he said, "I would never do anything." This young man happened to be a member of the church. My dad was pastoring. And the truth is he fell in sin with his fiancée and committed immorality. Had to come before the church, confess his sin openly before the church, repent and ask for forgiveness. And by the way, the congregation forgave him and embraced him and accepted him in the church because he repented. The problem today is, is immorality that goes unrestrained and unrepented of. I was speaking just uh, recently and my wife has family members and some of them claim to be Christians but uh, they live an immoral life. 
But the way they talk about it is if look, it's 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 twenty twenty, it's twenty nineteen. Uh, we advance now. We 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 gotta. You know, you you have to uh, test things to see if it's gonna work out. No, no, no. If you follow God's word, it will work out every time. And let me just say this while I'm on it. If you have committed immorality, and maybe it was before you're saved, maybe after you're saved, can I tell you that you, there's always forgiveness with God? You know, sometimes, often people, they think about their lives before they were saved, and say, Pastor, you wouldn't believe what I did. Oh, I can believe what you did. But let me encourage you here. If you've asked God to forgive you, He has forgiven you. And it's gone. And God doesn't remember it. There's no need for you to remember it and to bring it up. It's gone. It's under the blood. Praise the Lord for that. So he deals with virgins. Go back to Esther chapter 22. And he also deals now in verse 18 um, with, with, with witches. Uh, that's interesting. It's a pastor. I didn't think you'd preach on witches, but here it is. Ready? Verse 18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now, not a whole lot said, but it's pretty specific and categoric what is to happen to a witch. Uh, the word witch here literally means to whisper a spell. That's what the word means. This is a person who practices enchantments and magic. It is the practice of sorcery or witchcraft. The Bible uses the word witchcraft. So, for example... In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, the Bible says, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch. And so that covers all of it. And so a witch is defined, and I looked it up in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, the Dictionary of the Bible, uh, the English language, says a woman, a witch is a woman who by compact with the devil practices sorcery and enchantments. A woman who is given to unlawful arts. Unlawful arts. Unlawful means this, against God. Now do you remember it was in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when Saul... You remember he disobeyed the command of God. God sent Samuel to speak to Saul and to tell him, hey, you, you've disobeyed God. And Saul tried to um, you know, make himself look it through it all. Do you remember what Samuel said to him? He said this. That his stubbornness, his rebellion, his rebellion was as the sin of witchcraft. That's what Samuel said. Now, what we learn from that passage is that in our minds, when we think of witchcraft, when we think of a witch here, this is somebody who is in out-and-out out rebellion against God. Someone who says, I know I ought to be subject to God, but I'm a rebel. You see, a rebel, here, here's the difference between... Um, a rebel and maybe someone who may not be considered a rebel, it's their forethought, their forethought about a matter. You see, often uh, you may, there's a difference, for example, in children. Let me maybe explain it that way. That's how I can think, about, uh, think of it. Uh, sometimes our children can do things wrong with them not knowing that they're wrong. Uh, they, they might be ignorant about a number of things, right? Right? Um, 
things sometimes that might pose a danger to them or might pose a danger to uh, their, uh, their brother or sister. For example, we talked about a big deal about uh, how serious God takes negligence among adults. For example, of not letting your ox, that's a wild ox, roam, roam free. Uh, you think about maybe uh, uh, I have some tools that might be dangerous, a chainsaw, and I tell my children and when the chainsaw is running, don't touch it. You can literally press a button and that thing spins and if your sibling is around, that's dangerous and they might be negligent, but uh, it's more because of ignorance, not because they're intending to put forth a harm on somebody. And so we, we might say ignorance so in that sense that what they need is knowledge. But someone who is a rebel is someone who has the knowledge and still does it in defiance. Okay? That is a witch. Now, that specifically concerns the sorcery and so on. I, I do want to bring you to one passage so we can kind of uh, gain uh, an understanding of, of when and how that took place. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 33. Second Chronicles and uh, chapter 33. Hezekiah was, uh, was a pretty good king from what we remember. His son, however, was not a good king. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we learn about Manasseh. Manasseh was probably one of the worst kings. But I want you to notice here how bad it was. 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathens, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars to ba for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all of the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Blasphemy. Verse 6. And he caused his children to pass through the fire. Remember, that's what Deuteronomy said, don't do. That has to do with witchcraft. The idea was pass through the fire and they be unharmed. The idea there is to see if you can have some power and so forth. Uh, in the valley of the son of Hinnom, also the, he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit. And with wizards, he brought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And here's what the Bible says about Manasseh. Here's was his intent. Manasseh was not doing this because he was engulfed in witchcraft. He was doing this because of his contempt for God. Understand what Manasseh was doing. He was doing this in his witchcraft. I'm trying to get back at God. That's pretty serious. That's the context here of the witchcraft where he says that's what he did. And notice, he did that at the end of verse 6 to provoke God to anger. He was trying to provoke God. That, that takes my breath away. It takes my breath away that any man would be so prideful that he would provoke purposely God. I, I know we all provoke God because of our sin, but purposely provoke God. Saying, I'm going to do this because I know it angers God. That's what he did. Pastor, what does it have to do with us today? Okay, well, by then he said, remember what Exodus said? Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. I hope we understand here what that meant. 
not a lady running around on a broomstick. It's a woman among the children of Israel, not outside of the nation of Israel, but within the children of Israel, who was an outward rebellion against God, trying to provoke God to see if, I'm going to do this, let's see if God gets me. That's the type of woman. He says, you cannot suffer that woman to live. Now, <clears throat> so Pastor, I, I, we, we don't deal with witchcraft today. Well, today you can find, for example, the app. The app on your phone. Witchcraft and Wicca Spells app. Uh, here's the description. Start your witchcraft and spell journey now. There are Wiccan and witches spells for every positive purpose you can think of. With this app, you can take these Wiccan and witch spells wherever you go without lugging around a heavy spell book. If you find a spell you like, you can save this spell as a favorite so that you can return to it over and over again. Here are some of the features of the app. There are hundreds of Wiccan and witch spells witchcraft notes and rituals complete guide on how to celebrate the Wiccan eight sabbats book of shadows with your own Wiccan and witch spells a moon calendar information about common medical herbs candles and crystals used for Wiccan and witches spells and witchcraft etc and it goes on and here's all the benefits of this app and I looked and there was 11 apps on the top of the chart for all of those things what I'm saying is that it's at your children's fingertips if you give your children a phone. I'm just warning you that it's not a game to play around with. And maybe you get children things. I, I would encourage you not to do that in the strongest terms, not to give your children a Ouija board and anything that pertains to witchcraft and all of those things. I've seen people affected by it. Enough to know that it's evil and it's ungodly. But, but I do want to give a warning maybe that's not this out and out witchcraft and witch, but, but I do want to give us a warning as believers today in the 21st century. We have to be careful because there's a fine line. Uh, when you go out there and you study the blogs and all those things, there's a fine line when you go into the natural realm. I want you to be very careful. When you go into the natural realm and you pursue those things and those home remedies, I want you to know a lot of those things were contrived in witchcraft. And you have to be very careful. Sometimes you don't realize this. Well, it's just this natural thing and this remedy. You have to be very careful. And by the way, I'm all for natural stuff and all those things. I'm for those things. But be careful. Be careful. Not to commit yourself to think that somehow something is going to happen supernaturally to you because you're doing some type of diet or you're uh, following some type of, we will not call it ritual, but it sure seems like a ritual sometimes. If you put these ingredients at this right time, I'm just saying, be careful with those things. Be careful with those things. By the way, I'm all for home remedies. I, uh, my throat went out on, on Monday. Uh, and I was having trouble speaking. So my wife says, oh, I got this thing. And I said, oh, great. And so she put pineapple. I'm going to try to remember all the ingredients. 
and then vinegar, apple cider vinegar, and garlic, and ginger. That was nasty. But guess what? I was able to speak for the rest of the week. <laughs> Look, I, I'm not against natural things, but I've seen too many times, if you go back to the source, where many of those natural books, when they're written, they're associated with some type of witchcraft, sorcery down somewhere in the distance. And she'll be careful with that. Be very careful with that. And so that's uh, the, the witches. It's very prevalent in our society. I was actually the other day, just a few weeks ago, we had children run up to me, and it's interesting, I guess they know I'm the pastor, but they ran up to me, and apparently their app had released some type of demon. I am not joking. The children were there. And this is the, 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 the demon is speaking, the demon is speaking, what, what, what do we do? And they ran to my house. And you know what I want to know what I did? I, I did something very, very spiritual and very practical. I said, I'll tell you how to get rid of the demon. Delete the app. That's all you got to do. Just delete the app. It's gone. But there's something about it that interests the curiosity within the new generations of, oh, look, I can do this and I can speak to this. Those are all dangerous things. Uh, why? Because here it is. They are a substitute for a genuine communion and fellowship with the Holy God. That's all they are. That's what it is. It is a substitute for communion and fellowship with the Holy God. You see, we don't have to speak to widgets and chants. We can sing to God. <laughs> we can pray to a holy God who hears us, who is alive. And so we don't need any of this stuff. Let's continue. <clears throat> this is interesting, isn't it? Verse 19, he says, Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. That's bestiality. We, we refer to that today. It is an unnatural connection, intimate connection with a beast. Now, again, it seems strange that there would even be a need to address such perverse behavior. Um, you know, you read Romans chapter 1, you find that they, God, those who deny God and uh, who refuse, who worship and serve the creature more than the Creator, well, where do you think that ends up if they serve the creature more than the Creator? They are given over to vile affection, unnatural affection is what the Bible says. Well, relationship with an animal, that's an unnatural affection. It's not natural. God didn't design it that way. And it's hard for us to think, uh, to say, well, that, why would there even be a need to mention this? Here's the, the truth. Mankind has the potential to become so wicked that he may be turned over to become, in Romans 1, an inventor of evil things. An inventor of evil things. You see, that's what happens to the wicked. More wickedness goes on, the more wicked they become. The new invention at wickedness are they trying to invent. Why? Well, because without God, you're trying to look for satisfaction anywhere outside of God. And when you find that you do something over here and something over here and something over here and it doesn't satisfy, guess what? You're going to invent something else that you think will satisfy you. And we lived in a crazed, crazed world. Crazed world. Saw a report a few years back. A man 
want to be married to his car. I am uh, absolutely not joking. The man said that he was aroused by his car. All throughout our society now you have a move to uh, legalize pedophilia. And by the way, that's where the immorality goes where people say, well, love is love. No, love is not love. Let's just call it what it is. It's wickedness. It's not love. And we better not embrace that type of rhetoric in our society because, well, love is love. Just let a man love another man uh, and be intimate with him and let a woman love another woman. Well, where do you think that leads? Next thing, it leads to, if love is love, if that's the extent of your argument, then everything is permissible. Then why can't you marry the chair? If you love the chair, why can't you marry a dog, a cat, a fish? You know, these things seem unimaginable to us, but he mentions this to the children of Israel. A man shall not lie with a beast. That, he, you, you cannot allow this among God's people. Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. Why? Because it shows, if that is committed, it shows that they're far gone. That they are far gone. In other words, you don't wake up one day and want to do that. There's a process that has happened over a long period of time and when you see that that is the end of the process, then you have to, in the nation of Israel, you have to rid yourselves of those who practice, among the children of Israel, who practice such atrocities. But there's another one, and, and we're done here, and that is idolatry. Verse 20, He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Now, I do want to point out here that this is not just idolatry. We've already seen idolatry. It's not just idolatry here, but it is a specific kind of idolatry. Notice here it involves a sacrifice unto any god. You see, the act of idolatry, as we already saw it, is quite broad in its application as we saw in our study of the Ten Commandments. Remember, we talked about how idolatry is, is anyone or anything to which we give undue or supreme admiration and affection that is a God. Uh, when a person or a thing begins to occupy a dominating place in our affection, it is probably a God. Matthew Henry said, It is to love to desire, to delight in, or to expect any good from any sinful indulgence is prohibited. Equally, we are not to allow any person or created thing, however valuable or excellent, to rival God in our affections. All atheism, infidelity, and irreligion is opposition to God, an attempt to be independent of Him. The proud man is his own idol because he worships himself and expects others to do the same. The covetous man uh, uh, makes a god of his wealth, uh, which he loves, depends upon, and expects happiness from it. The sensualists, by his practices, worships deities as filthy as any seen in the pagan temple. 
Idolatry is the worship or the reliance on anything in the place of God, and that includes ourselves. That's idolatry. We talked about that. But this is not just idolatry. He says, if you sacrifice unto any God, the emphasis there is the sacrifice. Why do we need to mention the sacrifice? The specific judgment is focused on the sacrificing unto any gods. Here's the, here's the plain reason why I think we know if you're a Bible student why this is important. Because all the sacrifices that were instituted had one purpose. To point us to Jesus Christ. The sacrifices were always offered to God alone as a way to expiate sin. To satisfy the wrath of God. To go up to heaven as a sweet smelling savor. And they were representative of what Jesus Christ the Messiah would do. He would be the sacrifice of God. So that to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. And so to offer a sacrifice to any other God. Is a deep sacrilege and an offense to the person of Jesus Christ. And to his sacrifice. You see, when, Jesus, when, when God instituted with Moses, as he's going to institute the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, everything is going to be very specific. And it can only be applied to God as a shadow of what Jesus Christ would do. And to offer any type of sacrifice, any type of sacrifice, in any way, in any fashion, to any God, is a gross violation of the person of Jesus Christ. And so, he says to his people, by the way, the one who does this offers a sacrifice unto any God, save unto the Lord only. The Lord is to be the only recipient of a sacrifice. You know, it's interesting that you look at most pagan nations in the world, they offer sacrifices. It's the wrong type of sacrifice. They have no idea what sacrifice means. Not in, with respect to Jesus Christ. He says, the person that does that he shall be utterly destroyed. So tonight, we look at those things, those judgments. What I want us to do here is, look, we, we do not have a mandate to go and destroy, physically destroy anybody who is involved in that type of behavior. But what we are to do as God's people and say, that is still a valid standard from God. And we're going to stay away from any of those things. And by the way, if we are ever caught doing those things or involved in those types of behaviors, then we are going to run to God and in Christ ask for forgiveness. And He will forgive us and restore us unto Himself. Let's hold the standard of God. Let's do what First Peter says, Be ye holy, for I am holy.